Hey Hergem listener, before we get to this episode, I'll choose the winner of the Apple AirPods. Donovan is filming this. It will be on our Instagram stories, Salon Republic and Love Eric Taylor. I put the names in a bag. Can you hear the bag, podcast listeners? I'm going to randomly pick one winner. All right, my hands are sifting through the different names. I've chosen one name, and the winner is Sin the Colorist, C-Y-N-N the Colorist. DM me at Love Eric Taylor or Salon Republic on Instagram with your mailing address, and I will send you the Apple AirPods. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you what we're going to give away next week and how you can win. Now down to business. This episode is with a legend in our industry, John Maley. For those of you who've been hairdressers for at least 10 years will likely remember going to Maley's Beauty Supply for everything that you ever needed in your lives. For those of you newer to the industry, Maley's became salon-centric. I'm sitting here with John Maley. We're in my office for everyone listening. And John Maley is the son of the founder of Maley's Beauty Supply. And as the leader of Maley's in the Western US, he grew the company from 2 million to 200 million in sales before ultimately selling to L'Oreal in what, 2007? Yeah. After which they changed the name to Salon Centric. Correct. What did you, how did you feel about the, the name change? Yeah, it, was, it was beautiful actually because we really felt our family had started something special and it was kind of ours. And so when they decided to make it a national brand and come with the salon-centric name, it was kind of good because you know, that was going to be their thing and our thing was going to kind of pass away, which was perfect. So your baby was no longer your baby. It was somebody else's baby. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you and I have been friends for a number of years. We got introduced by a mutual friend. And for everybody listening, John was instrumental in helping me um, put the beauty supplies into Salon Republic. You introduced me to somebody at, at L'Oreal. And that was, I'm very grateful for that still. So thank you very much for that. Absolutely. John wrote a book. You wrote a book. Why did you write a book? Well, we had had a 42-year run in the beauty industry with Maley's. And um, it's been 11 years since we sold the business. And uh, I was around a Thanksgiving Day table with my son and my mom. My mom and I were kibitzing about the... Uh, salon world and kind of what had happened with our business and uh, just, you know, kind of reminiscing. And my son Luke, who at the time was 21, said, uh, you know, started asking questions about the business. Um, you know, gosh, how'd you do that? And why'd you buy that company? And how, why'd you get in the industry? And all these really cool questions. And so we talked for an hour. Uh, how old was your son? He was 21 at the time. At the time when we sold, so therefore he was like 10. So he knew nothing about the 42 years of our family history. And so I... So, so you never had these conversations before? No, not really. You know, I just, you know, the past is the past and you kind of move forward. Um, and so uh, it was really fun to, um, to just kind of talk to him about it and kind of educate him on the things that we had done. He said, you got to write a book. Mm -hmm. And so that was Thanksgiving. So in January, I hired a, uh, a lady to help me, uh, Madison Utley. And she, uh, she and I met every Thursday, and we would talk about the story, and she would write, and then I would edit, and then we'd interview my brothers and my sister and my mom and some of the key employees. And uh, over the next nine months, we put together the book. 
Did you have a structure? Did you head into the process with a structure in place? Uh, we were just telling the story. You know, so we just kind of got the story on paper. Um, and uh, then it was a matter of kind of figuring out how to make it interesting. Um, and one thing that I, when we were going into it, the interesting thing about it is that uh, we looked at, at the kind of the world at large. Like, okay, what, what salon industry history is out there? You know, can, can I go to the library and just pick up a book on kind of what happened from the 50s till today in the salon industry? And how did, you know, where did Vidal Sassoon come in? And how did Paul Mitchell come in? And what, who's, who's Jerry Redding? And all that sort of thing. Just, and there's literally nothing out there. Nothing. There's, there's, it, a, there's a Vidal Sassoon book and there's a Paul Mitchell book. I think about this all the time, by the way. We're yeah. going to do an episode soon, actually, based on the fact that there's so little history. We're all worried about the trends yeah. you know, now and the trends going yeah. forward for the next year and what we're going to do with our clients. But there's n everything in the past has just kind of vanished. Yep. That's very true. And so I was, um, I, so it was important to me to tell the story of the industry as much as it was to tell our story of our family. So I kind of tried to weave the, the industry, because the industry, you know, in the 50s, I mean, the only thing sold in hair salons in the 50s was hairspray and hair nets. Because women went to the salon every week and got their hair, their hair done, and that was it, until Vidal Sassoon changed the world. And, and so because, so anyways, it was important for me to tell that story and have kind of the world know about that, um, as well as what our family had kind of how the little small part we played in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, for us it was as important to, about posterity. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've got grandkids and we have this, you know, really great uh, life because of this wonderful industry we served for all those years. And so it'd be no, nice for them to know how it all happened. Okay, so where can people get the book? Amazon is our place for it. All you have to do is I've never heard of them. Where, where, how do you find them? Yeah, it's, it's hard to find. Amazon.com, um, A-M-A, no, uh, <laughs> you just type in John Maley, M-A-L-Y, and the only book that'll come up will be uh, A Beautiful Business, The Maley Story. Is your dad still with us? 20 years ago, my dad passed away. Um, he had sold us the business in, uh, in 96, and shortly thereafter, he found out he had lung cancer, and two years later, um, he passed away. And uh, so this, uh, you know, it's 2018 when this book came out. Um, and so on the anniversary of his 20-year uh, death, we uh, put the book out. Oh, wow. So. That's powerful. Yeah. He started the business originally yep. in the Midwest, correct? Yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan. How did he get into the business? Yeah, it's a great story. So he, uh, he was an athlete in high school. And... Uh, but he started dating my mom, and uh, he said, eh, I just need to start making money. I need to th start thinking about my future. So he quit sports, and he was sitting at the bus stop waiting to go home. And uh, the gentleman that was at the bus stop, he and, he and my dad got to talking, and it was a guy named Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy hired him to work in his warehouse. And Mr. Kennedy and, and my dad became friends, and my dad became a good worker in his warehouse. And over time, my dad got married to my mom. I mean, literally graduated high school in June, got married in September to my mom. Nine months later, my brother Mike was born. Eleven months later, my brother Rick was born. So my dad had to make money. So my dad was <laughs> working, at, uh, working at this business in his warehouse, and then he offered him a sales position. And the first day he started was the launch of a new product 
called Miss Clairol hair color. Wow. And so my dad learned how to put on hair color. And so he, he learned it backward and forward, and he would go out and teach his stylist how to put on this new thing called Miss Clairol because hair color wasn't a real popular thing at the time. And uh, he fell in love with the industry, became one of the top salespeople for Miss Clairol in the country out of little tiny Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, his, his career began um, in the beauty industry, and he fell in love with it. Um, and then in the 60s, as you know, the world changed in a big way with Vidal Sassoon and with the Beatles. And, uh, and so in that time, my dad had uh, realized that Mr. Kennedy passed away, his son was taken over, and his son uh, broke the promise that his dad had made, which was that he was going to allow my dad to become a partner in the business. So my dad quit on April 1st and uh, went home to my mom, who had five kids at home, and said, yeah. honey, I quit my job. And she thought, is this an April Fool's joke? <laughs> and he's like, no, honey, I, I think I can do it better. And so that's exactly what they did. They, uh, they built this business from, from nothing. He bought a little tiny barber, uh, barber company, um, barber distributorship. It was a shelf full of products in a van. And he went out and sold to barbers. Um, and his first thing he did is taught barbers how to do precision haircutting the Vidal Sassoon way. Um, he brought people in to teach them. And uh, education was the foundation of how we got started to help our barbers realize you have to do this thing called unisex hair salon because it used to be barber shops and beauty shops and neither the tween shall meet. So yeah, that was kind of our, our start. How long did he work for the Kennedy uh, operation before he started his own? Yeah, it was uh, 15 years. Okay, wow. Yeah. Patient man. Yeah, he, he didn't see himself starting his own business. He thought he would, and Jerry Kennedy would make Kennedy's a great business, and, uh, and that just wasn't to be. So his new path was, was going to be Maley's. So then he started growing it from that van. Yep. Uh, did he have a storefront? Did that come with the purchase of uh, this? Nope. He, uh, moved, after a year, he had a storefront, bought in, you know, moved into a larger location that had a storefront. And, uh, but, you know, this is back in the day when, you know, we were selling wigs and we were selling, you know, Hask and Jarris and all these products that no one's ever heard of. They were barber products. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a different world back then. So when did you guys get, and I say you guys because you are the youngest of five? Correct. Four guys, four, four brothers, mm -hmm. one sister. Yep. Were you all involved in the business ultimately when you got when, when you became yeah, so involved? I was four years old when we started, <laughs> so I wasn't really that involved. My sister was a little older, and my brothers were in, um, the oldest was 14. And so they would work in the warehouse um, and kind of help pull the product and that sort of thing and load my dad's truck back up at night. Um, and that's kind of how it got started. So then four years later, my brother Mike, when he graduated from high school, went to the University of Maley's. <laughs> um, went right to work for my dad, and then a year later, my next brother graduated. And he went to the University of Maley's, got got his degree selling barber products and beauty products to salons, and then my brother Craig did, and it just uh, you know the business kind of got started. Did you feel pressure to do it? No, I I was the uh, I was the black sheep. I uh, I actually went to I went to college, which was the only one to do that. Uh, crazy, and I got an accounting degree and worked for a huge accounting firm in Chicago. So crazy. And then I, but the industry doesn't take long to get in your blood, and so I was, uh, I was doing hair salons, books, 
I started my own business called Salon Consultants to start doing books for hair salons. And uh, a couple years into that, that's when my dad called me and asked me because they had bought a small company in Los Angeles from Paula Kent Meehan, the owner of Redken in Los Angeles. And they can't have a family business without a family member. Family business uh, tied me in, so I moved out to Los Angeles. So this was part of your old man's expansion. Yep. Right. So he was uh, he had grown in the Midwest, I guess, yep. sufficiently, and he, he he started looking west. Yep. And then uh, Paula Kent, why would she sell a distributorship? She had her own distributorship in Los Angeles, and she was a great manufacturer, but it's hard to be both. Hard to be a distributor and a manufacturer. And so she wasn't doing it well, and my father was, and said, hey, why don't you, you know, he had, my dad had started vacationing out in Palm Springs, and hey, why don't you, while you're out there, why don't you run this business? And so my dad did. So before we go out west, so to speak, in the conversation, tell me why your old man was doing it well. What, what was special about him? Well, from the beginning, from his days selling for Kennedy's, uh, it was really all about walking into the salons and trying to help them with their business, help them, you know, educate them to, to learn the newest trends, to learn the newest things that were happening in this industry. Um, I've talked to beauty school students a lot over the years and, you know, they, they always feel like their one year of beauty school is it. And I always tell them that, you know, at the end of it, it's the beginning. You know, the beginning of learning because the things change so much in this industry. And so, you know, we tried to just be a helper to that. Uh, to learn those trends from the industry and bring them to our salons to help them be successful. So that's what, you know, and we were really good at it. Um, so we started with RK. That was a big brand for us. RK was a men's line under, under Redken. And then they gave us the Redken line a few years later. And, but we were one of like six distributors selling Redken in our territory. And then we got the big break when this guy named John Paul DeJoria and Never Paul, heard of him. Paul Mitchell, uh, came into town and said, asked us to be their distributor in Michigan and Indiana. So my brother said yes, and my brother Rick moved down to Indiana and built a business for us down there, and brother Craig moved to Detroit and built a business for us there, and, and so they just, they did really well. They, they had, you know, they, they had salespeople that cared about their customers um, and tried to educate them, and, and that's what got us going. So, so bringing additional value than just here's the product, yep. pay me for it. Yep. So in family businesses, the concern that I would always have, and I, I've never been in a family business necessarily, certainly not to the extent that you're talking about here, but what's to say that your brother is the best guy to be running the business in the east, yep. right? Or your sister is the best person to be doing it in the south or whatever, yep. right? And how do you manage for that? Like what if what if one of your siblings just sucks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a really uh, classic uh, dilemma. Um, we were very fortunate that we all grew up in the business. We all had really hard work ethic. Um, we all really understood the business. Um, so there was, thankfully there was none of that for us. Um, there was never ever, you know, in our 42 years in business and our 20 years as partners in owning the business, um, we never had discussions about or arguments about how to run the business or what should be done. It was really more kind of like the tertiary things that weren't important. But I can't imagine how hard it would be to have to um, fire your son, which my dad did, 
or fire my, my brother to fire my sister, which my brother did um, at different times in our industry, so, or in our different times in our history. So it wasn't all rosy. It wasn't all rosy. Um, but, you know, you get through those things um, and you do what you think is best for the business. So tell me about that. So you, your, your old man told your brother to fire your sister. No, my dad fired my brother. Your dad fired your brother. And then my brother, a couple years later, fired my sister. But he was already fired, so how could he fire the he sister? He got back. He, he uh, okay. worked his way back into it. Okay. Um, yeah. Got it. And, and so wh why? Why did the old man fire the son? Uh, I think he just felt like he wasn't, he didn't have the same vigor that he had had for the business, and he had kind of lost his, his gumption for it. And uh, so my dad, you know, ultimately fired him. Um, but my brother... Um, loved the industry, was really very talented, and so he took a little bit of time to think about it, and he came back and kind of begged for his job back, and, and my dad didn't give it to him. He gave him a job in the warehouse, and my brother worked hard as you can work to pull, you know, to make the warehouse fantastic again, and then my dad eventually gave him the job back to run the business, and the rest is history. So that's an indication of why, yeah. you know, all of the, all of the sons and daughters were good at managing because they were held accountable. Yeah. A lot of parents have trouble holding yeah. their kids accountable, right? It's a great, great point. So, and, and then why did, why did your sister get fired? Well, my, my brother was at a point uh, when we had bought the company that he, um, he realized my sister was having babies and she was probably more interested in run, raising her kids than she was running the business. And so I think he ultimately thought there was a conflict of interest there. Yeah, right. So I think ultimately it ended up good because, you know, frankly, my sister was able to raise her kids. And, right. Um, and that's but, more important. Yeah. But it was, uh, it, was a, it was a little sticky at the time. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. My gosh. I was going to ask, is it, was it lucky or, or was it good parenting? But it sounds like it was really good parenting. Yeah. Yeah. But when I came to Los Angeles, though, it, uh, you know, I was, I was thankful that I didn't have to deal with the dynamics of family because... You know, there are family dynamics that go into any situation. Especially um, if you're on the day-to-day -day in the same office, right? Yeah. My brother got a divorce at one point in the, uh, one of my brothers got a divorce during it. And so, you know, that was a huge upset to the family. But guess what? We have to do, still do business and we still have to move forward and we have, still have to serve our salon. So, yeah. wow. So anyways, when I came out of Los Angeles, I kind of made a vow that I wasn't going <laughs> to fall into that. I was going to just... I wasn't going to have the family involvement because I really, they allowed me to run the business separately. So. so how did you get the West Coast? I mean, that seems like the, the best region, right? You would Not think. Not just for lifestyle, but also obviously a big region, very profitable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, at the time, um, it didn't seem like it because there was, we were the Redken distributor, but we were one of, uh, I think, five distributors in, in Los Angeles. So it, didn't seem that exciting to be out here. And we were in uh, the Midwest and none of us ever, you know, the, the West was, you know, this weird, crazy place. None of us really had interest in that. But I was the youngest of five kids. I was the only one that was, didn't have a house and didn't have kids. And so me and my wife moved out and we were kind of the only ones that were, weren't uh, locked down. Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, I, uh, thank God that we uh, got the opportunity we did. It was incredible. Okay, so you get out here, <clears throat> you have a lot of competition, and over the course of how many years um, did you build that business until you sold it? Well, it was 18 years from start to finish. Um, 
our big break was we got Paul Mitchell exclusively in Los Angeles in 1989. They were previously with other distributors. Yep. And um, we got it in Los Angeles, and, and at the time, Paul Mitchell was the hottest brand in the beauty business, growing like crazy. And so it just gave us just this huge opportunity um, to you know, take Paul Mitchell and Redken, and Redken at the time wasn't very popular, but Paul Mitchell was. So between the two of them, we had a really great story to tell to the salon. So how did you get it? Um, the, sadly, the distributor that had us before us had some financial trouble and we were already a distributor of Paul Mitchell in the Midwest and so we had a great relationship. My brother had a great relationship with John Paul and, uh, and so just them knowing us, we were there and we were an option for them, it was just kind of a great uh, circumstance. Wow. Yeah. So you grew it from how many stores to how many stores? Well, we, we had no stores. We just had the warehouse and then we ultimately had three warehouses um, throughout the Western United States and we had 130 stores throughout the Western United States. Amazing. Over 18 years. Yep. How many employees at the a, end? A thousand. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. That includes uh, office, warehouse, and stores. Yep. Sales. Mm -hmm. right. Educators. Mm -hmm. So how did, how did distribution change from the time that you got involved out here to the time that you sold? At the, you know, when we originally got involved was, was not a exclusive arrangement. There was multiple distributors for every brand. And when Matrix started, Matrix made a big deal about making everybody exclusive. We weren't a Matrix distributor specifically, but that started a chain of reaction from brands like Sebastian and Paul Mitchell that everybody became exclusive distributors. Why? Um, because they knew that if you, know, if you were Redkin and you were popular and there were six guys selling you, then Everybody, you know, Redkin's popular, everybody wants Redkin, every distributor wants it, it was kind of easy. But they knew if you're a new guy breaking in, if you're a Matrix breaking in, that salesperson, if, you, if he had six Matrix guys, to, who, who, why is he gonna pick your brand versus somebody else? So Matrix made us, you know, um, Arnie Miller made a great decision to say, we're gonna stick with one distributor in every territory and we're gonna give them the brand exclusive, we're gonna give you all of our resources to make this brand, you're the, our only guy. And, uh, and when he did that, and people like Paul Mitchell and uh, Sebastian did that, it, it changed the face of distribution because now all of a sudden, instead of um, just having every distributor pretty much having all the same brands, every distributor, you know, you were either a Redkin distributor or you were a Matrix distributor, and, and so you built those brands from, from scratch, really. And then it seems like you would then become a little bit more of a partner because you, you have all of the incentive to grow that brand. Right, absolutely. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I think about the, uh, uh, you know, Paul Mitchell. I mean, if, if Paul Mitchell is gonna be sold in Los Angeles, it was a huge responsibility because we're the only guys that were gonna sell it. And so, you know, if Paul Mitchell wanted to, in Los Angeles was a huge market, you know, so, you know, and frankly, JP and, uh, and the company was located in Los Angeles. So any time JP was out in the market, John, why is your product not in this salon? John, why is your product? And so, you know, we had huge <laughs> pressure to, to make sure that it was in every salon, which was a tall order. Right. Wow. It's amazing. If it fails, it's your fault. Right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you have this book 
and it's what, 100, less than 200 pages. Correct. Right? So it should be a relatively quick read. Yep. Um, I got mine, by the way. I ordered mine on Amazon. I got it like three days ago. Perfect. So I didn't have a chance to read it. But I did look at the pictures, which were very entertaining. <laughs> and I did read just a couple tidbits here and there. Um, but I'm definitely going to read it, uh, um, even though I'm a slow reader, by the way. I, I'm a huge audiobook guy. Oh, yeah. Love it. So are you going to do an audiobook? We don't have an audio. We do have a Kindle edition that just came out yesterday. Oh, okay. Okay. So I got the, the, the soft back, the soft cover yep. version of it. So you can sign it for me. There you go. Um, so when one reads this book, what, what are they going to get? A hairstylist. What, what are they going to get from it? Well, like I said, the, the most important thing I think that they'll get is a, a real history of the industry. Um, why it is that we do what we do in this industry. Um, because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, all of us do. Um, and so because of that, it's important to know how you got where you are. Um, and so I think it's important to know Paul Mitchell's story. I think it's important to know Vidalis' story. I think it's important to know uh, Paula Kent's story. And, um, and so I think that's, if nothing else, that's a good story. Um, but also just to, I think it's a great family drama. Um, we, had a, we had a great success story. Um, I think it's nice to know kind of the other side of the industry uh, for people, you know, the distribution if you're from the salon side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you uh, still close with all of your siblings? Yeah, we get together all the time. I'm flying to uh, Florida. They, they, many of them have vacation down there or have bought homes down there. And so go down there and hang with them for a week. Is anybody still in the business? My brother Mike uh, kept the Paul Mitchell distributorship um, when he sold to L'Oreal because he's a very incredible businessman. He was able to negotiate that. And um, Mike still has a, a has since bought another distributorship, Charles Penzone in, in Ohio. Penzone is one of the largest salon chains in Ohio. And uh, he had his own distribution, so he bought that, and uh, he's killing it. He's got a great business in Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Are there any interesting anecdotes that you want to tell us about the book? Tell us that are in the book. Kind of a trailer, if you will. Yeah. You, you, mm-hmm. you gave us a little bit of uh, history already, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of my one of my favorite stories was um, about r- working in a small family business. Um, I, I grew in high school. I would load the trucks, and so I'd ride my bike over to the office. I had my own key. I'd go in the back, and the guys would get done with their orders at six o'clock at or the, their truck at six o'clock at night. I'd come in and I'd fill their order. I'd go in the warehouse pick up the products, put it back in the truck in the right spots. And one day, and the only way you could do it is to read the handwriting of the salespeople. And so I walked into my dad's office, because of course he was still there, and my dad was a small man, five foot eight inches tall, but he was a mountain of a man to us. And uh, I said, Dad, the salespeople in this company are all screwed up. You know, they can't write their orders right. I can't even read what they're saying. And he stands up from his desk and he said, salespeople in this company make this company and they always will. So tear in my eye, turn on my heels, go back out in the warehouse and continue uh, filling the orders. It was one of those things that just kind of like, okay, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it his way. And he says salespeople are the most important thing. That'll be what will be most important. It's not about me. Exactly. Why did you sell? The, uh, it's, um, 
19, uh, excuse me, 2006, I am planning a huge expansion into Texas. We're buying four different distributors. We've got it all aligned. Um, and uh, and L'Oreal is our biggest supplier. They represent 40% of our business. Um, and L'Oreal decides they want to, because uh, L'Oreal owned Redken, they own Matrix, and, uh, and L'Oreal, of course, and we represented L'Oreal and Redken. Well, they had a little bit of a fight with BSG, uh, uh, Cosmoprof, and they decided they were going to make them Matrix, uh, to give it to all the uh, Redken distributors. And so all of a sudden, we got this huge gift of Matrix as a co-distributor. And uh, so we're planning this expansion to Texas, and our biggest brand at the time, besides L'Oreal Brands, was Pureology. Pureology had become a $20 million brand to us. And, uh, and the biggest reason we were buying this company in Texas to expand our business was for Pureology, because that was what we thought we could really grow. And there was a palm distributor there. Well, L'Oreal uh, came to me and whispered in my ear and told me that they were buying Pureology. And so my expansion into Texas would be failed because they would keep it with their Redken distributor in Texas. Mm. And so. Good thing they told you. So it was nice of uh, one of their uh, lieutenants to whisper in my ear before I did that. And uh, so Redken had come to me, and, or excuse me, L'Oreal had come to me and asked me to buy the business, and I told them no. And we're expanding this Texas thing, and then we find out about that tell my family about this and all of them were ready to fight the good fight. We're going to stay in the distribution business. We want to stay at it. And then we found out that 70% of our business, once they own Pureology, would be owned by L'Oreal. And so if at any point in time L'Oreal wanted to walk away uh, from us and start up their own distribution, that we would basically be out of business. And uh, so we all wisely decided that it was probably the right time to walk away. And L'Oreal was very generous with our family, um, and because uh, we were the, it was us and one other distributor that they bought to get it started. So it was really a great, great opportunity. How much did you sell it for? Well, it was a nice mu multiple of sales of uh, profits. So they they were willing to uh, give us a really nice multiple. I knew you weren't going to tell me. Yeah. But I had to ask anyway. Of course, <coughs> absolutely. It was bigger than a bread basket. <laughs> In less, in less than uh, John Paul DeJoria has in his bank account. <laughs> there, that's a big spread. <laughs> that tells us nothing. <laughs> At the time, a lot of the uh, beauty, uh, Women's Wear Daily and some of the other beauty publications uh, put numbers in there about what it was uh, sold for, and they were pretty accurate. Well, there you go. If you care, you can look back, everybody. What are the biggest lessons that you learned running Mailey's all those years? Um... Well, I was the leader of the bus, and uh, I used to call, I used to always say I was the bus driver. And, um, and if you jumped on our bus, um, I could guarantee the ride was going to be a little bumpy. It was going to be a little crazy, but you're going to learn a ton when you're on our bus. And at some point, you're probably going to jump off the bus. And when you jump off the bus, you're going to go and do what you're going to do. And I, I just ask that whenever you leave our bus that you continue to grow and continue to make the industry better. And so uh, the thing I learned most was that, you know, as the bus driver, you gotta, you gotta be the one that's driving the bus. You can't, <clears throat> no one else is driving the bus. You know, it's your, you know, no one's telling you what to do every day, you gotta figure it out. 
and it's the same with every single person, honestly, on the bus. Same thing with the hairstylists that are doing their own thing. My dad used to walk into hair salons uh, early in his career, and he'd walk in, he'd say to the salon owner, hey, salon owner, how's business? He'd say, oh, it's great, man, we're killing it. He says, okay. And the hairstylist, him, the salon owner, was busy as a bee uh, doing hair. He'd walk in the back, and there was four hairstylists sitting around a card table complaining about how slow it was and how much they hated the owner. And so my dad would take that salon owner aside and say, you know something, your business is great, but they're not, business isn't. And you, your job is to make their business great. And so um, anyways, we, uh, there's lots of stories like that that you think about. It's your own personal responsibility because all those hairstylists were working in a salon that could have allowed them to be busy. They had to get out there and pass out their card. They had to get out there and get an Instagram account and put it, you know, get followers. They'd have to, every place they're going, they'd have to talk about their industry. Um, they have to do the things that it takes to build their business. They're the bus driver. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the parts of the book that I did glance at uh, before we started talking, uh, you wrote that there would be a time that you could walk into a Maley's now salon-centric and they wouldn't know who you were. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, so when you sell your company and they change the name, um, you know, a lot of hairstylists in the Los Angeles, excuse me, in the Western United States and in the Midwest knew the Maley's name because we sold a lot of products to a lot of salons and a lot of hairstylists, had a lot of relationships. Um, but it's a young industry, and so young people come in and out, and so I just knew that at some point I'd walk into a salon-centric store and I'd go to the cashier and ring up my product, and they'd be, oh, okay, um, Okay, Mr. Maley, um, and say nothing. Mr. And, Malley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and so that happened to me uh, about a year ago. It was pretty pretty funny. Okay, so it took ten years. Yeah, yeah. How'd you feel about that? Um, it's a little, you know, maybe that's the reason I wrote the book. Keep the name out there. Who knows? Yeah. Are you concerned about legacy? Um, like I said, I don't look back a lot. Um, I'm very thankful that my brother stayed in the industry and is making a legacy, uh, continuing the mailing name back there. Um, but no, I'm not. Uh, I have other business pursuits that I'm pursuing. And how has distribution changed since you sold Maley's? Well, it's a it's a tough game. Yeah, you know, my brother would tell me um, it's a really much more difficult game um, because the two big guys, uh, salon centric and Cosmoprof dominate the industry so much. Um, it's, a, it's a harder harder time. Um, salons, even though they don't like diversion, even though they don't like some of the things that go on with some of the bigger brands, um, they're not as adept to go to those young independent brands as maybe they, they would like to, you know, the, the independent distributors would like them to. Um, and so it's a harder it's a harder job because the big salons are oftentimes wrapped up with some of the big brands, mm -hmm. bigger you know, by, controlled by Cosmoprof or Salon Centric. Um, and you know when they when they've got each one of them has you know six hundred to a thousand stores uh, at every street corner, um, pretty hard to compete with a, if you're a small independent distributor. All right. So what have you been doing since you sold? It's been ten years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I own a, a restaurant and a brewery um, in Santa Clarita. We're a local uh, company called Wolf Creek. Um, and so I stay involved with that. And I also own a, a safety distribution company 
Um, we have a website called Enviro Safety, very popular in the safe industrial safety industry. And so I run those two businesses and I have a company in Boston as well that sells computer supplies, um, distribution company. And then I have uh, three grandchildren that I get to run after as well. So it's uh, That's fun. That's wild. Because I always think of you as like 46. Yeah. How old are you? 55. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Me and my wife have uh, been married 31 years and thankfully we got married kind of early and so had kids early and our kids had kids early. So we're starting to enjoy the uh, fruits of our labor early. That's amazing. Talk about um, some of the biggest lessons that you've learned, maybe the biggest lesson that you've learned uh, about the beauty industry uh, specific to your experience with Maley's. Yeah. Well, the reason that, you know, because I've been in other industries now in a big way and, and they're great and all that sort of thing, but there's nothing like the salon industry in that um, hairstylists, when they're 11 years old, are doing their mom's hair, they're doing their sister's hair, they're doing their neighbor's hair, they're doing their doll's hair. And when they grow up and they become a hairstylist professionally, um, they do it oftentimes not because they're interested in making a lot of money, they do it because they absolutely love making people look beautiful and, and they love that craft. And so when you do business with people that that is their passion, it's amazing because they're, they love what they do. And so when you're sharing in that passion, when you're helping them share that passion with a new product or a new technique or a new business concept, you know, it, it's just, it's a very uh, attractive industry because of that. So what I've learned is that when you do business with people that love what they do, it's, it's, it just makes doing business really fun. So you don't get that with the security industry <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, we're making people safe every day, but uh, people don't necessarily don't always want to be safe. You know? <laughs> they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't become safety experts uh, when they were, uh, because when they were 11 years old, they wanted to make everybody safe in their neighborhood. <laughs> That's very funny. And I love the way that you phrased all of that because I definitely feel the same thing. And, you know, I'm going on 18 years with Salon Republic and we're just getting started. But I look forward to maybe when I'm 60 or mm -hmm. 65 years old and maybe I'm not running Salon Republic anymore. Am I going to be doing something else in another industry? I don't know. But one of the things that concerns me is that Am I going to like being with people um, in another industry who don't care as much about being in that, in that industry? Mm. And you know, you, the insurance industry gets kicked around as being one that nobody cares about, sure. right? Maybe that's too extreme of an example, but it just seems like most other industries, people are just there out of kind of necessity. You know, they've got to make a paycheck, so I guess I'll go be a X, mm -hmm. right? Versus a calling almost that it seems like you yeah, know, our industry. industry is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a uh, that'll be a that'll be an interesting journey for you. Um, there's something I'm kind of fascinated with that I'll throw out to you before we wrap things up. Um, you know, I hear a whole lot about you know be who you are and be true to yourself and all this kind of stuff, and and I feel like the the there's another side of that coin that is very, very important has become, in my estimation, a little bit underrated. I'm all about be who you are and true yourself. All of that's great. But it doesn't seem like adaptation is getting the, the attention that I think it deserves. 
because I think one of the primary things in our lives that can contribute to being successful and happy is the ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. Tell me about um, any time in your career, personal or professional, when you've had to adapt, you know, uncomfortably adapt in, in a situation. Well, leaving Maley's, um, you know, you have to adapt to what, what is life, you know, I was 43 years old, you know, what is life like now? Do I just retire and play golf and tennis all the time? Or do I figure out a new purpose for my life? Um, so I had to adapt and figure out what's next. Um, and that's taken 11 years, right? I mean, it'll take the rest of my life to figure out where, where I'm going to adapt next. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I've, enjoyed the, uh, I've enjoyed the freedom of this adapt adaptation. I, I read a book by uh, uh, the comic artist uh, behind Dilbert, right. Scott Adams. And uh, he talks about the greatest thing you can have in your life is freedom of time because um, oftentimes we don't have that. You Absolutely. Know, we work a nine to five job and we work it, you know, so we have 40 hours that are accounted for. And so I, I have this wonderful opportunity in my life now that I have this, I've, I've been able to adapt to a life of, of less structure. Mm -hmm. And is that uncomfortable? And, and hold on, let, let's, let's go back to wh what you were like at Maley's right up to the end. Were you a hard driving dude? like up early, long hours, very regimented, high anxiety? Uh, no. Um, over time, I, uh, I realized that um, I'm a Christian and I realized that God is in control of all things. And so I realized that slowly but surely I had to take my hands off the wheel because um, ultimately whatever I did was going to, you know, was going to be controlled by others. And so um, I worked as hard as I could. Um, but I also, it, to me, my kids were important, so I was able to um, be the coach of their uh, teams and go to their sporting events and that sort of thing. So that was important to me. So I always worked. I worked 40 hours a week, um, but I would make time for the other things in life, too. So you're well-balanced. Yeah. And that probably made the adaptation into post-Mailies uh, maybe a little bit easier, huh? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I wasn't... I wasn't uh, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day type of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, I started that way when I came out. But, you know, over time, like I said, I, uh, I realized that wasn't uh, a formula to win. Right. Did your dad expect that of his no. kids? No, I don't, I don't think he expected that, uh, that craziness. He, he had told me at one time I had, I'd made a pretty big mistake early in my career and um, he had came out and he said, John, he says, you're a, you're a smart guy. He goes, I, I know that you're going to make mistakes. He said, but I also know that you'll probably not make that same mistake again. And mm -hmm. that was kind of the... Yeah. It's very important. Yeah. So what is the, at this point moving forward, what is your greatest hope personally for your life? My greatest hope for my life? Um, I, I would hope that I could just continue to contribute um, to make the uh, people that I work with um, enjoy the enjoy the enjoy the ride, enjoy the place they're at, enjoy the uh, contribution that they get to make, um, and I, I get to me and my wife mentor a lot of uh, young couples, um, premarital couples, and so we're just involved nice. with helping people. Mm -hmm. What a great thing! Yeah, yeah, what a good idea! Yeah, it's, it's I cool. I don't know many people who do that, but 
what an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. How'd you get into that? We had a uh, young couple come to us and say, hey, can you do some premarital counseling for us before we get married? And that was, uh, I think we've done eight couples since then. How much time do you spend with them? Uh, we get together with them once a week for eight weeks. Um, have we fix them dinner and kind of talk to them about what like what's going to be like to be married? Very interesting. Yeah. I got a little mid Midwest in there when you said fix dinner. I was about <laughs> to ask you what was wrong with it. <laughs> now I'm, awesome. I'm from I'm from Dallas, right? So so my parents fix dinner too. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, but when I Instead moved out to California, cook dinner. Or <laughs> I don't know. Make dinner. Make, yeah, yeah, make dinner. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. When I moved out to California, I said that one time. I said, I'm going to fix lunch or whatever. And somebody who was from the West Coast said something akin to, uh, what's wrong with it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me of when I came to Los Angeles, I was from mid the Midwest. And every freeway that you were on in the Midwest was called an expressway. And so when I moved to Los Angeles, I started calling them all expressways. <laughs> and everyone laughed at me because John, you realize you're in Los Angeles and things aren't express out here. They don't move that fast. We call them freeways out here. Yeah. Okay. Freeways. Yeah. And we call them the 405. Yes. And the 10. Yes. Whereas in Texas, it's not the uh, 635. It's you're on 635. Right. Very funny. All right. So um, our audience is 99.999% hairstylists. So uh, any last words for the hairdresser community? Well, I love the uh, I love this these people um, because of what I said. They 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 do what they do because they love the industry. They love helping people. They love making people feel beautiful. Um, and um, I just in my only word to them is that um, it's okay to be a business person and still love what you do. And sometimes um, my worry for them is that they. Um, they allow their customers, who they consider a friend, um, to be, um, be too much of that. A good friend of ours, Roy Peters, who is a very famous um, platform artist for Redken for many years, um, used to say, he says, no, um, you're doing hair for your friend that's going with her friends out to a party. She's really not your friend. She's really your customer. And you've got to treat her as such. You can love her and all that sort of thing, but you've got to charge her the proper amount. You've got to raise your prices every year. You've got to charge her if you're going to add a conditioning service. It's okay. She's your friend, but she's really your customer, your client. There's a professional relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think a lot of that uh, tends to go south when, uh, when the hairdresser starts getting a little lackadaisical, you know, the, the client is maybe lackadaisical and the hairdresser is lackadaisical and then the client starts thinking, oh my gosh, okay, you know, Sharon hasn't shown up on time the last, mm. you know, five appointments or whatever. Yeah. But Sharon's thinking to herself, oh, Jane Doe, my client's a friend. Yes. You know, so what, she doesn't care. Right. Right. So keeping mm -hmm. it professional is something we talk about a lot on here. Yeah, that's so. great. Okay, so remind people where they can get the book. Eric, the easiest way to do it is go to Amazon.com, type in John Maley. You keep saying Amazon, but I, I have no idea who this Amazon is. <laughs> They're a pretty big retailer, actually. Um, online retailer. Uh, type in John Maley, M-A-L-Y, and our book will come up.
The name of the book is A Beautiful Business, The Mealy Story. Do they have to type in A Beautiful Business? No, just John Mealy. Just John Mealy? Yep. Because you as the author will pop up. Yep. Okay. The easiest way to find me. All right, go read it, everybody. You're going to learn a lot about our industry. It's going to be worth it. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Hope that you really liked my conversation with John. Next week, I'll be giving away an Amazon Echo smart speaker. I've got like five of these things. They've become a part of my life. They're awesome. I think you're going to like them too. For a chance to win, write a review on the Apple Podcast app or the Stitcher app for those of you with Android phones. If you've already written a review on the Apple Podcast app, write one on Stitcher so you're eligible to win. The review has to include your exact Instagram handle because that's how we will know who wrote it. A few of you have written handles that don't actually exist, so make sure that you have your handle right. Make sure that you're following Salon Republic and love Eric Taylor on Instagram. And that's it. I then put the names into a bag, close my eyes, and pick one like I did at the beginning of this episode. I'll announce the winner at the beginning of next week's episode. For details, you can go to salonrepublic.com. Next week, next week's episode will be from the Redkin Symposium in Las Vegas. Until then, have a great week.